Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. This idea of positive reinforcement involving coercion or coercion being inherent in positive reinforcement is not something that gets talked about. And I want to kind of dissect that because what's more true than those statements is basically that coercion could certainly exist in a positive reinforcement based protocol and we need to be aware of it because coercion has fallout it is dangerous it is not something that we want involved in our training Um, and so just because you are not physically forcing the dog to do anything doesn't mean that coercion isn't present in your session so let's just talk about a couple of examples basically what I mean by coercive utilization of positive reinforcement is that you are using reinforcers that spark a sort of desperation in your learner, reinforcers that feel life or death to your learner are going to involve inherent coercion um, in your process. So we talk a lot about using high value reinforcers and it is important to use reinforcers that are high value and very much worth the task at hand to your dog. That's so important. So where's the line? Where's the reinforcer that is far too important to the dog to be fair to use? And then where's the reinforcer that is just right? Um, How do we know? Well, sometimes it has to do with the task at hand. So for Felix, I do a lot of his training, his agility training primarily with toys. And he loves toys. We have a great time doing sequencing with toys. But he cares so much about them that they are problematic in some areas. In particular, the ball on rope and all manner of ball on rope is pretty life and death to Felix. When we're working agility sequencing, he's pretty much going to get the ball and rope, no matter what, really often. Because when we're working on sequencing, who are we really working on? Whose behavior are we really working on? Mine. That's why it's ideal in that situation. It's high value enough for him to hang out while I learn and keep working while I learn. And I give it to him a ton. He probably has possession of it at least 50% of the time, if not more in our training session versus one day I wanted to do his toenails and I didn't have any food in my office. Um, I have a cookie jar that I use in my office, but it was empty, but I did have a ball and rope sitting on the desk. And so I thought, well, we'll just try this. As soon as he knew the ball and rope was what was involved for the toenails, the guy lost his mind. He started Um, He was pulling his foot away from me. He was vocalizing at me. He was just showing me 
just so much conflict. He'd come forward, he'd stand for the behavior, he'd do the behavior I'm asking him to do, but I'd go to do his nails and he would vocalize and he'd pull his foot away and he'd back up and then he'd come back over and say, I want to try again. He was in such a state of turmoil that I went, wow, this isn't fair. This task is too hard for you, for me to use something that's this important to you because it removes choice in your mind because there is no choose not to have the ball for this dog. Similarly with Iggy, if I'm using very, very high value food treats, I will see the same kind of conflict in a husbandry procedure. Um, and that's, so again, that's something that I want to, I want to avoid. I want to use something that's tasty and good to her that she wants to work for, but I don't want to use something that she is losing her mind over. So I'm not going to use steak. I'm not going to use bacon. I'm going to use fresh pet. I'm going to use happy Howie's. I'm going to use, you know, soft dog treat type things, but not outrageous, amazing things that she literally would die for in those scenarios because then you're removing choice because the dog's saying, no, I want that so bad I will do anything. And I don't want that from them because of these conflicted behaviors that you get. So like Felix got um, vocal and really fidgety and he just basically couldn't do what I was asking him to do even though he was trying really hard. Um, Iggy will respond a little bit differently. She might also get vocal, but she it's its basically a look on her face that I get uncomfortable with. Um, just kind of a look of desperation, and she may also vocalize. And those, those are not good things. So then the right reinforcer for the job for husbandry is something that the dog wants, but, but can live without. So they need to want it, but they need to not feel desperate about it. And just as a sidebar, you may have a dog who just doesn't have feelings big enough about their reinforcers for this to be a problem for you um, or, or even something that you need to think about. Or you, and honestly, for Iggy, for the most part, I don't need to think about it. For Felix, I need to think about it when we're talking about toys because his feelings about toys are so big. I need to be very aware of when I might be utilizing the toy in a coercive manner because the toy is something that he can never say no to. And I want him to always be able to say no to the behavior that I'm asking him for. If he feels that it is not worthwhile for him in that situation, if he feels uncomfortable, I don't want him to feel like he has to. In the same sense that I would not put a prong collar on him and make him stand for toenails, I would not make him stand for toenails for the ball on rope because both of those things are unfair and coercive to me. So what we're talking about is what I call high stakes reinforcers. So you want high value, but you don't want high stakes. And the behaviors that we want to really avoid high stakes reinforcers for are behaviors that feel risky to your dog or feel difficult to your dog. So what behaviors feel risky? Well, sometimes the teeter-totter, especially in early training, feels risky to our dogs. Hopefully we've gone slow enough that it doesn't, but like Felix was pretty bothered by the um, teeter early on, even though I did a ton of shaping a bang, you know, wobble board as a puppy and we did bang game. You know, we did all the quote unquote right stuff. And I knew that it was still gonna bother him when the board fell when he was on it. 
And there weren't a lot of ways to replicate that. We did skateboarding. I mean, we did all the ways that I can replicate it. But I knew that it was going to be potentially hard for him. So I built consent right into the procedure and needed to use high value food, food that he wanted, but never a toy and never anything that he felt was high stakes or life or death or, you know, something that he would do anything for because this is a behavior that feels risky to him. And I want him to fully understand because I'm always after confidence. I'm always after the dog showing up to the behavior, showing up to the task with a complete, I got this and it's going to be great for me attitude. Coercion does not foster those attitudes. Um, it fosters these kind of yucky feelings of conflict that I don't want involved in my training at all. And so, you know, maybe just maybe the behavior is just difficult and not risky. So, for instance, scent discrimination um, is difficult for Iggy, particularly handler scent discrimination for utility is what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that the actual act of scenting is difficult for her. She's a dog. She knows what she's doing in that front. Finding the article that I have scented amongst stuff that, if we're honest, has my scent on it because everything in my training space has my scent on it is kind of hard for her. And when I, so I need to use high value stuff because it's hard, but it's because it's hard, I need to avoid high, high stakes reinforcers. Um, I used a high stakes reinforcer with her for a second with the scent discrimination and she just started snatching at the articles. And if you do obedience, you're going, oh yeah, this has happened to me before. Um, when you, when you weave coercion of any kind into that exercise in particular, you get snatching, you get less thoughtfulness. The dog needs to feel very confident in his own abilities to be able to scent appropriately um, and to be able to say confidently, yes, this is the right one, I found it. And, you know, the same goes for any other scent work stuff, nose work, um, tracking, you know, these are things that you want to encourage the dog to do obviously with high value reinforcers but the second you involve something too high stakes and you remove that ability to kind of take a deep breath and scent and trust what they're scenting you run into trouble way way back in the day i remember uh training my first obedience dog this is like 20 years ago training him to do scent articles um and i utilized a correction at one point this was how i was taught how i learned um because everything I'd learned up to that point was train it with positive reinforcement and then correct when they're wrong after they already know, quote unquote, know the exercise. And when my instructor saw me correcting him for bringing me the wrong article, she basically panicked and ran over and stopped me and was like, never, 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 never do that. And I was so shocked because that's not, that's not how I was taught. I was taught to utilize a correction you know, when they were kind of at that level in their training. I was literally taught that the that step one is teach and motivate, step two is correct, and step three is proof. That's what I was taught. And I was in the correct phase in my mind. And she ran over and she stopped me and she was like, never, never, never correct articles like that. And I was like, wow, okay, whoa. And now I understand that the collective wisdom of the obedience people that I was working with was not that corrections were bad, but that corrections 
to do with articles might be bad. And now I feel like stepping back, I can see why that is. And I can see that it's because it produces frantic snatching behavior. It makes the behavior too high stakes for the dog if they're trying to avoid something. And the same problem happens if the reinforcer is too important to them. The exact same thing happens. And so we, we want to also not weave coercion into our positive reinforcement training plans on purpose. And you're going, why would we do that? You know, what, what is, how does that make any sense? Is anybody really doing that? <laughs> and the answer is, you know, yes, I just saw um, on Instagram a very, very well-known trainer, dare I say famous trainer, saying that um, she starves her dogs. She didn't say, I starve my dogs, but she said they only eat when they're working. And so if they choose not to work, they choose not to eat. This has been common practice in performance animals, like performing animals, like in circuses, zoos, aquariums, that kind of thing. This has been common practice amongst those people forever. Still is, I'm sure, in some institutions. But when you withhold calories, you literally make the behaviors and the training high stakes for the dog. If they're actually starving, you're withholding from them um, something that they need. And then because of that, you are making the behavior something they need to do, have to do in order to survive. And that is coercion. That is not a positive reinforcement based protocol. If you withhold attention from your dog if they are crated unless they are working that's another popular uh sport puppy raising program says you know basically they're in a gentle leader or in a crate or they're working that's coercion too that's saying you have no choice you know if you want to use your brain and your body you're going to be doing it on my time for me and otherwise you don't get to that's coercion you guys it doesn't you don't have to have a prong collar on a dog to be utilizing a coercive protocol and what i'm saying is no it's it's not very nice and it's not how i want to interact with my dogs but bigger than that it's going to get you problematic behaviors as well and i find this um because you know it creates stress it's counterproductive to the confident performances that we want to be seeing and also if your dog chooses not to eat in training, don't you owe it to them to figure out why that is? Don't you owe it to them to say, oh, okay, everything on this earth wants to eat. So if you don't want to eat, even though I starve you, um, I need to have a look at how you're feeling in the training situation. Are you afraid? Are you too stressed? Are you sick? Is there something wrong with you? And there are definitely dogs that are too hot and too high to eat. Those are, you know, a lot of young border collies are basically too excited by the world to eat. And that has to do with um, basically the body prioritizing certain things because of the arousal level that the dog is in. But that's kind of, that's really not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dogs that maybe are a little bit too stressed to eat and participate in training. And so you say, well, you can eat when you decide to participate or you can interact with me when you decide to participate. Um, besides being unkind, I do think that's counterproductive to our final goals, which is to have a willing partner who is confident in his own abilities and confident in his task. 
so the bottom line, you guys, is that I want my dogs to choose to train with me, even though they have very fulfilled, enriched lives. Otherwise, they go on off-leash hikes, they play with other dogs, they actually have access to toys all over the place, um, and they will eat every single day, whether I train them or not. Um, and that's just my, I think, responsibility to them, to take care of them. And then it's my responsibility also to make training so appealing and so attractive that they still want to opt into training, even though they have all the stuff that they need, generally speaking, in their day. So you really just want to think, you know, if I'm seeing stress in my behaviors, if I'm seeing avoidance, um, if I'm seeing conflict, maybe you consider the reinforcer and maybe you use a lower value one and see what that does for you. It could actually help you, even though that doesn't make intuitive sense to us as trainers. But give it a shot. Let me know how it goes. All right, we've got some Patreon questions for you. These come from my patrons who pay less than less than a price of a cup of coffee a month to be able to submit their questions. We have great conversations over there and I show them some training videos of the things that we talk about on air. So that's patreon.com slash cogdogradio. First question comes from Elisa. She says, tips on training a dog to back up in a straight line. Teaching a backup has been a training nemesis and I finally got her moving backwards with enthusiasm, but sometimes she is crooked. The rear foot target method is what I used to, at long last, teach the backup behavior for context. Elisa, I also use a rear foot target for walking backwards. And if you are still having a lot of crooked walking, then you haven't placed your target strategically enough. The dog needs to only hit the target if they walk backwards straight. And I would continue to actually click them for hitting the target so that that's the end goal for a while until you have consistently straight backwards walking. Manipulating the environment like that to help you shape the dog is gonna be one of the major things that I talk about um, in my August class at Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. It's a new class called Shaping Demystified. And we'll talk about that more, but always think how can I change the environment to make the behavior that I want happen easier. Could you use barriers for this too? Of course you could. I find them a little bit harder to get rid of than the foot target. Um, so I would shorten the space that you're using right now and really focus on walk backwards to the target in a straight line um, before you try to get rid of the target or try to click the dog for just that backwards movement. Thanks for your question. The next question comes from Kim. She says, tips on training multiple dogs in the household. It seems so hard to organize. Well, I'm not sure if you mean training multiple dogs all at once or just training multiple dogs in general. But for me, if I am training them all at once, I've got the non-working dogs on stations and I work hard on that behavior. If I'm training them individually, then the other dogs are usually crated inside and I've got the one dog outside or in the uh, training building. And I think that it's important to make sure that the non-working dogs are occupied and are trained to be comfortable with that. I've got a workshop that's open for registration right now on happy crating. That's available through the Fenzy Pet Professionals program. There's links on my Facebook page as well as if you just go to FenzyDogSportsAcademy.com and find the Pet Professionals Workshops tab, you can sign up for it. It's called Happy Crating. 
you're saying I wasn't talking about crating. Well, happy crating has a lot in there to do with just teaching dogs to wait and hang out and be quiet. And that can be a big help to you. As far as organizing the dog's different training requirements, I've got whiteboards and I've got training notebooks. So my two dogs that I'm primarily training each have a dedicated notebook and they've each got dedicated whiteboard space, both in my office and in the training building. So I'm always, I always know what it is I need to work on. I don't have to think about it. I look at my task list and I go and do something and I try to do something almost every day. Last one for today is from Lizzie. Lizzie says, I would love to hear your thoughts on the utilization of non-contingent reinforcement as a means of addressing behavior issues and in dog training more generally. Well, Lizzie, it's an interesting question because non-contingent reinforcement technically does not exist. If we're utilizing reinforcement, it means that behavior is being built, which means that there are contingencies in play. Um, what what people are referring to when they say non-contingent reinforcement is essentially just feeding, just free, um, free access to high-valued items. Um, free access to reinforcers. I think we can call them reinforcers because they do shape behavior. Um, we could also further categorize it, and I prefer this, into just being a DRO procedure, which stands for differential reinforcement of other behaviors. And that essentially means that you're going to reinforce everything other than the problem behavior. Sometimes that is where I might start. I might start with a DRO um, procedure. I might start by just feeding the dog for every single behavior that they give me other than the problem behavior. You can't end there though. Nothing will be solved just by ending there. If you start there, what you could do is enhance the dog's kind of interest in working with you and in the, you know, being into the training scenario. Um, and you could also lessen right off the bat the uh, likelihood of the problem behavior because you are reinforcing other things. But I do think that through doing that, we want to watch the behaviors that start to get offered and watch the behaviors that the dog starts to try instead, and then streamline our approach quickly into a DRI, which is differential reinforcement of incompatible behavior, or DRA, differential reinforcement of alternative behavior standpoint instead. So let's just take um let's just take leash reactivity so barking and lunging at other dogs while on a leash for an example what i could do is just start flowing food into my dog the second that other dog shows up as long as the dog's not barking and lunging so anything the dog is doing the dog gets to eat he sniffs i feed him he looks at me i feed him he walks i feed him he you know, air sense, I feed him. He stares, I feed him. He shakes off, I feed him. Anything he does other than bark and lunge, he gets fed for. Then I can watch the behaviors. I can see where we're going with this. And the dog's going to start to give me something in these situations. So the dog is going to start to go, oh, looking at you is paying off. I think I'll do that more often. And then I can start to select that specifically and then go down a more DRI or DRA approach and only reinforce that behavior instead. It's important for us to know 
you know, all these fancy words don't matter as much as as what we're actually doing <laughs> with the dog, but it is important for us to know what we're actually doing with the dog. Non-contingent reinforcement is essentially just differential reinforcement of other behaviors, meaning you're reinforcing everything other than the problem, or it's just free flowing food. If it's not building any behavior, if you don't see any behaviors start to um, be shaped and become more robust, which is what helps you to then go a more DRI or DRA route, then it is not reinforcement of any kind because you are not improving any behaviors or um, making any more be any behaviors more likely. And it's important for us to kind of to note that and be aware of what we're doing going forward and to be very um, be very wise about you know watching the behavior seeing how it shifts and grows, seeing how, seeing if our reinforcement is affecting it or not, and just always paying attention to what's happening rather than saying, here's my formula, this is what I'm going to go do, and this is going to work. We have to try stuff, evaluate, try stuff, evaluate, and something we could certainly try to start out with is DRO, differential reinforcement of other behaviors, or non-contingent reinforcement as it, as it has been, as I've heard it be called um, a few times as of late. Thanks for your question, Lizzie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.